This is the Food Factor Podcast, the show that talks about the connection between your health and what you eat or don't eat. I'm your host, Stephanie Mahachek, clinical nutritionist, health coach, science nerd, perma student, and mother of four. I love dogs, babies, and most of all, talking about all things health, wellness, and the weirdness of the human body. Thank you for being here. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Food Factor Podcast. I am so grateful and thankful that you are here listening and chose to spend a few moments with me today learning about some things about nutrition that hopefully will benefit you or someone that you know, love, and care about. Today, I want to focus a little bit on a topic that we haven't really covered yet on the podcast, but comes up super frequently, and that is fibromyalgia. Now, fibromyalgia, this is something that is still super controversial, let's say, in the medical and the kind of functional medicine world. There's a lot of back and forth conflict and is it real? Is it not? Is it inflammatory? Is it all caused by all these things? There's so much back and forth with it. And we'll get into this in a second. This is actually, I'm going to go through some of the highlights of a paper that I wrote for my doctoral program that was all about nutrition and fibromyalgia and actually integrative approaches to fibromyalgia. But there were a lot of, I did a lot of research in it and I wanted to share some of that with you because what's the point in researching if I don't share it, right? Um, But there are a couple of, of things that I found super interesting that I'll cover over the course of the next, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, But I want you to kind of think about your knowledge of fibromyalgia. Is it something that you personally have have experience with or maybe a family member? Or do you fall in the camp of, I don't really think it's real. I think it's all in people's heads. You know, there can be a wide range of opinions on fibromyalgia. So let's dive into this a little bit. And again, I am not a neurologist. I am not (laughs) anything but a clinical nutritionist. So all of this is coming from the lens of nutrition. And um, I do talk about some integrative approaches that I found during my research. This is not an extensive list by any means. Um, And as you'll find out as we go through this, fibromyalgia is a very unique to the person type of thing where some people benefited greatly by dietary changes and others didn't. Some people really did well with cold therapy, others didn't. So there's a lot of you know, wiggle room when it comes to this disease, if you will. Um, But that's just something to keep in mind as we go, because I get a lot of feedback sometimes like, that's not true. That didn't work for me. Nutrition is not a umbrella approach to everything, as hopefully by listening to a few of my episodes, you'll know it's personalized. It has to be personalized because we are all so unique and individual and our histories are unique and individual. And all of that plays into how well you will do with certain treatment protocols. So hopefully that's, that's clear. All right. I want to give a little bit of an overview. So fibromyalgia is a super complex and widely disputed multifactorial syndrome that actually dates back as far as the 19th century. I found that really interesting when I was doing the research on this, um, that it's it's not new, <laughs> even though for some of us it might be like, yeah, I feel like I just heard about it like three years ago. It's, it comes back from the 19th century. There's information on it dating back all the way back then. And it's often marked by widespread muscular skeletal pain, but it also includes other symptoms. Some of these can be secondary symptoms, such as muscle and joint stiffness or fatigue. Insomnia is big with this. 
heightened pain sensitivity, meaning like your pain response is super amplified and also cognitive disruptions like anxiety or depression or other mood disorders can oftentimes be linked with uh, those with fibromyalgia. Uh, it can be a challenge to diagnose, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on how this is diagnosed because it's super interesting that there's no diagnostic criteria. <laughs> it's really fascinating, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. So because of the fact that the main symptom is pain, which of course is highly subjective. So um, just to give you an idea of how prevalent it is, it's estimated that around 1% to 8% of the world population is impacted by fibromyalgia. And it happens to affect more females than males, although males definitely do. There are cases of males having it as well. It's not solely for the, the ladies. Um, but there can be a huge variation in the prevalence across the world. So Japanese populations are sitting at about 2 0.1%. Canada had about 3.3% of Canadians with fibromyalgia. Germany is about 3.8%. And Lebanon, of all places, Lebanon has about a 7% of the population experiencing fibromyalgia. So if anyone wants to go down a research rabbit hole for me, figure out what the connection with Lebanon is and fibromyalgia. That'd be super interesting to, to unpack. So it is actually the third most commonly diagnosed condition in rheumatology clinics. Although I also saw a study that said it was the second most common diagnosed condition in rheumatology clinics. So second or third, uh, either way, it's highly diagnosed. At this time, though, like I said, there's no specific conclusive testing for a diagnosis. In fact, because of the challenging nature of assessment and diagnosis, it's estimated that about 75% of the people with fibromyalgia remain undiagnosed. So if when I go through some of the symptoms and, and things like that, if you're like, gosh, that sounds like me, you may be one of the 75% that are actually undiagnosed. So risk factors have been determined in the development of, the, of fibromyalgia. So this puts you at, at greater risk of having it. There is a genetic predisposition. Um, also being female, like I mentioned, your family history can play a big part. I'm going to talk about some twin studies in a second because you know me and I love my twin studies. And triggers like physical and mental trauma, specifically childhood trauma, are a huge risk, put, put somebody at a huge risk factor for developing fibromyalgia. Um, also certain types of infections. So comorbidities such as anxiety and depression, and also things like IBS and acid reflux also increase the chances of a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. In some cases, it can heighten the chance of being diagnosed by up to 30 to 50%. So big connection there with a lot of other underlying things that can put people at risk. It is not completely clear though on the development or how the how fibromyalgia actually develops in a person. Um, this is one of the more frustrating things for me because I feel like with so many advances in diagnostics and technology, we still can't figure out what solely causes it. But I think that could be because there's no one cause. There might be multiple causes of fibromyalgia. And depending on your genetics, maybe one thing can cause it in one person and another thing can be the trigger in the other person due to the genetics. So there's always that kind of spiraling, you know, cascade that can happen. The difficulty of diagnosis 
relies on the patient's reporting the pain level and the multiple influences of pain interpretation. So think about that for a second. If the biggest thing that is helpful in diagnosing fibromyalgia is your perception of pain, I personally have a really high pain tolerance. So I could have fibromyalgia right now and not be aware of it because my pain tolerance is so high. Whereas somebody else, even though fibromyalgia causes a a heightened pain sensitivity, if you naturally have a higher pain tolerance, you may not be feeling it as much. Whereas somebody else might be just suffering miserably. And who's to say you both don't have it? But just because one person's suffering more and has that that greater interpretation, you both still could have it. So that kind of plays into the misdiagnosis of it as well. Females, again, tend to be diagnosed more than males in a ratio of about two to one. Um, It's becoming clearer, though, that underlying low-grade inflammation plus insufficient nutrients and antioxidant levels could be a big leader of the development of the disease. So we'll get into the nutrition components in a second, but I wanted to highlight that, that nutrition, specifically deficiencies in certain nutrients, have been closely monitored and they're being discussed a little bit more heavily as far as like their contribution to developing fibromyalgia. So let's get into talk a little bit about like the, uh, the family connection. Some twin studies, again, I love twin studies. Man, I wish I was a twin or I wish I had twins because I would throw them in all the studies. They're so interesting. Anyways, twin studies showed up to 50% risk of developing chronic pain between the, the siblings. So environmental factors like physical trauma, infections, or psychological events can, of course, increase the risk of developing fibromyalgia as well as influence the severity of the symptoms. So they actually looked at twins who had different traumatic experiences and they could sh- it showed that certain environmental things as well as certain physical and emotional traumas actually caused the disease to progress even more, despite the fact that they, they were trying to prove the genetic component wasn't there and it's all there. <laughs> There's a genetic component and an environmental and psychological component as well. Um, It's estimated that there are hundreds, hundreds of genetic variants that relate to pain and pain sensitivity. So you think about just because you have pain doesn't mean you have fibromyalgia, but the fact that they were able to narrow down certain genes in the hundreds, hundreds of certain genes tied to your perception of pain, which I thought was super interesting. If you've ever had a genetic test done, um, there are certain genes that are more related to pain, certain GABA and GABAergenic uh, pathway proteins, things like that. Um, I won't get into all that because again, I'm not a geneticist and, and not all that is super clear for me. But if you've had yours done and you have somebody that you can connect with to go over some of those, it can be interesting to see. Um, but despite the fact that there's no single gene that is attributed to fibromyalgia specifically at this point, there was actually a 13.6 fold increased risk of someone developing fibromyalgia if they have a genetically related family member also with fibromyalgia. So it increases, if you have a blood relative who has fibromyalgia, it increases your chance of uh, by 13.6 fold. So that, that again, huge genetic component there, but they haven't tied it specifically to a certain gene. Um, Again, there are hundreds of pain-related genes, but none specifically for fibromyalgia. Um, Again, because there are so many symptoms within the umbrella of fibromyalgia, though, other genes like the COMP-T gene uh, for depression and anxiety can also be looked at within 
that fibromyalgia umbrella. So lots of genes being looked at, but none specifically for fibromyalgia. So like I said, more research is definitely needed on the pathology and the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia, but many researchers label it as a pain processing issue within the brain, resulting in hypersensitivity. To me, though, I was like, you're still putting it on the brain. Even though I get it, pain perception is comes from the brain and, and neurons all go to the brain and you touch your hand on a hot stove. It's not your finger telling you it's hot. It's your brain telling you, getting that information from your finger and the brain tells you it's hot. So I get it. But I think to, it, it, to me, that kind of seemed a little insensitive, kind of like you're passing it off on a processing issue within your brain. But uh, again, maybe that is, maybe it'll come out in the next you know, few years saying that it is totally a, a processing issue. And I want to spend a little bit of time since we're talking about the brain and, and neurons and, and everything, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about neurotransmitters that I uncovered when I was doing this research, specifically glutamate. Glutamate can cause higher perceived pain sensitivity, making those with elevated levels more likely to feel an increased sensation of pain. And those with fibromyalgia who were actually properly diagnosed with it had, in some cases, had elevated levels of glutamate. So interesting connection there. Altered other neurotransmitters also lead to other symptoms like the the sleep issues, the fatigue, depression. Those are all related to different dysregulated neurotransmitters. And an increased level of norepinephrine are seen in many fibromyalgia patients, as well as a lower dopamine and serotonin levels, which of course leads to mood changes and, and issues with sleep and issues staying asleep. Another thing that kept coming up in the research is a neuropeptide called substance P, which is released along with glutamate during nerve transmission. And that can actually influence pain as well. In fibromyalgia patients, it was seen that substance P can be threefold higher than those without fibromyalgia. And I found one interesting theory about how fibromyalgia is, is rooted in things. And that had to do with the dorsal root ganglia. Now, if you're like the what now, just hear me out. So the dorsal root ganglia are part of the the central nervous system, and they're found outside of the blood brain barrier in the brain. And they can be easily affected by infective agents, antigens, and, and be easily attacked. And this can cause disruptions of the hundreds of thousands of nerve fibers found in each of those ganglia. So when we're talking, it's basically think of it like a huge bundle of nerves that are being attacked or can be attacked. They can be susceptible to infection and viruses and certain antigens. So with more than half of fibromyalgia patients complaining of that neuropathy or that pain, and, and especially in like the, the small fibers of, of, of different tissues, that is actually being thought of as a result of the damage to the, the root ganglion, the nerve unit of different parts of the body. And it could be possible that the disruption of the dorsal root ganglia due to an infection or other factors could actually be the start of the chain of events that leads to fibromyalgia. So again, not confirmed, but just one theory that I found interesting that I wanted to share. So with very little known on how it actually starts and what the root cause is, uh, let's switch gears a little bit to so how it shows up in people. So as I mentioned, fibromyalgia is a syndrome that can show up differently in everybody. <laughs> it's not, very rarely do certain people have an identical uh, presentation. The main characteristics of the condition is 
the widespread pain and and those the, the pain comes in various degrees depending on the person uh, sleep disturbances so insomnia issues staying asleep issues falling asleep getting enough sleep fatigue which of course could be a result of the sleep issues or it could be a result of infection or things that are underlying that we don't know of yet um, and when you're in pain it's very exhausting and takes up a lot of your resources uh, but then also mood and cognitive disorders like depression, anxiety, and brain fog is a big one too. Pain perception can range from manageable to severe and debilitating with the confusion being around how a person's pain tolerance can play a role. Um, again, I, if I were to do a little bit more diving into it, it would be fun or nah, maybe not fun is the right word, but it would be interesting to see people's pain perceptions and their pain tolerance levels and how that uh, contributes to their fibromyalgia diagnosis. So to kind of give you an idea of what this might look like in someone, let's say if somebody has fibromyalgia, they can experience a very vicious cycle of the pain or the sensation of pain, which leads to being unable to sleep, which leads to being exhausted and fatigued, which leads to worsening cognitive and mood symptoms, which then leads to poor nutrition and, and un, being unable to move as much or exercise, resulting in disturbed sleep and increased inflammation. All of that kind of starts that cycle all over again. That's just one way, but you can see how it can all be connected. So due to the difficulty of diagnosis, the average person can actually take around 2.3 years to be properly diagnosed. And those with fibromyalgia tend to have a lower quality of life, as you could imagine, depending on the severity of the symptoms, uh, which of course, when you are in the process of being diagnosed for 2.3 years, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to probably feel hopeless. Typically though, due to the elevation of excitatory neurotransmitters, a person can also feel anxious, moody, tired, of course, and have an increased level of pain because of those excitatory neurotransmitters also being released. Unfortunately, though, this pain is usually not limited to an isolated location, but it's all over the body. It's systemic. So it takes about 2.3 years on average to be diagnosed. And like I mentioned, there is disagreement or over whether or not there is a quote unquote gold standard of diagnosing. Back in the 90s, the American College of Rheumatology created criteria that actually evaluated 18 points of the body. And when they would give this kind of, it was actually like a map or like a, a, like, you know, you go to the symptoms checker on Google or a WebMD or whatever, you point to the, the areas of the body where you feel pain. And if 11 or more of the points are positive for tenderness or discomfort or pain for at least three months of consecutive pain, then the fibromyalgia diagnosis was there. Um, so again, not super reliable and totally subjective to how that person feels. But later in 2010, this whole process was actually updated to include the non-pain related symptoms. So tender points, if you were wondering, tender points, because I was wondering, are assessed using a pressure threshold and other pain related conditions are ruled out based on the symptoms that the, the person is reporting. And then of course, clinical assessment. So a lot of room for variation in there which is why there's no real gold standard for diagnosing. Specific biomarkers or blood labs or blood work have not yet been conclusively determined for 
diagnostic purposes, but certain markers may be helpful for practitioners just to rule out other things. So there have been the development of actually a questionnaire called the Fibromyalgia Impact Questionnaire, and it's based on the Fibromyalgia Assessment Status, which was developed in 2019, but but still, there's no gold standard. There's some tools uh, that certain practitioners will use, but there's no gold standard. So basically, fibromyalgia is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. So looking at different inputs, if you will, that are associated with having the condition can be helpful. So I'm going to pick three that I chose to focus on in my research. So again, some of them are nutritional status related, and I did want to connect on the psychological component as well. So one of the areas of deficiency that I looked at was vitamin D. So as we all know, vitamin D is a huge Uh, it's very common to be deficient in vitamin D, at least in the U.S. So vitamin D levels have been reported to be low in about 40% of fibromyalgia patients, which coincides with previous studies linking low vitamin D levels with chronic pain and depression. Um, One specific paper looked at multiple studies around vitamin D deficiency in fibromyalgia and determined that those with a deficiency who were treated with vitamin D supplementation saw an improvement in their fibromyalgia symptoms within that time frame of the study. So I can link some of these studies below or in the show notes if you are interested in looking at some of those, but just know that this specific study looked at other studies that vitamin D supplementation did improve symptoms. So really, I mean, a vitamin D check, if you feel like you have fibromyalgia symptoms, getting a vitamin D check from your doctor is a super simple way. I mean, at minimum, most people are low in vitamin D. And I, anytime I'm talking with a client or anytime I'm talking with a friend or a family member and they're going in for their annual blood work, or, or if it's been a while since they've gotten blood work, they, the doctors don't always throw that in. It's not, it's sometimes it's not included in a basic blood panel. You have to ask for it. Um, but if you are feeling pain and if you are feeling exhausted and you're feeling some of these other symptoms, it's perfectly reasonable to ask your doctor to also test for vitamin D status because what your status is will determine the supplementation amount that you need. You don't just want to throw a thousand IUs once a day at it and feel like that's going to improve anything. If you are super low in that, that's not going to raise anything up at all. So it's really important to know where you're starting from before you start supplementing with vitamin D. So that way you will have the most effective method of raising up your levels and keeping them up. That's just a little aside. As far as if you're curious about why vitamin D is linked to fibromyalgia, it's, it's rather inconclusive, but some of the research attributes it to the role that vitamin D plays in multiple inflammatory and pain pathways, as well as its connection with calcium balancing. So if, you're, if you ever took a physiology class or an anatomy class you, and you learned about muscle fibers and contractions and things like that, calcium and the balance of calcium and potassium and everything is very important with that. So when you're thinking about pain and you're thinking about muscle spasms and you're thinking about stuff like that, calcium can absolutely be part of that conversation. And vitamin D and calcium are really uh, hand in hand with each other. It's also thought that due to vitamin D's ability to downregulate the pro-inflammatory pathways, it actually helps to reduce uh, something called prostaglandin E2. And that is really helpful in lowering your pain perception. So um, again, not super conclusive with that, but that is some of the, the theories that the research is coming out with. Another nutrient that I wanted to look a little bit closer in with fibromyalgia was magnesium deficiencies. 
being low or deficient in magnesium can be linked to chronic inflammation as well as muscle weakness and a decrease in cellular magnesium. So what's actually in your cell has been noted in a lot of fibromyalgia studies. Not getting enough magnesium rich foods can lead to worsening pain due to magnesium's role in actually blocking pain receptors. Deficiency though can also lead to increased levels of that substance P, which as we previously discussed, its role, it has a big role in the perception of pain. So when you have increased levels of that, that's not a good thing. You feel more pain. Magnesium also has an impact on the health of the gut. And the gut is not something that I'm going to dive too much into with fibromyalgia, but know that there is a connection. So magnesium having an impact on the gut and the gut health, uh, specifically with motility, has also been shown to influence your quality of sleep, as well as your nutrient absorption, as well as your Uh, neurotransmitter development, and a host of other things. So lots of the symptoms related within fibromyalgia's umbrella can be tied back to the gut. And if you're magnesium deficient, that can also impact your gut. So the last thing I wanted to kind of highlight with uh, when it comes to fibromyalgia is the impact that psychological trauma can have on the development and the diagnosis and the severity of uh, the disease. So whether the the trauma was recent or, or it could be from childhood, A life event that is traumatic causes distress, resulting in heightened neurotransmitters such as cortisol, and it also can affect the person's ability to cope. Traumatic events that occur during childhood specifically can have a bigger impact on the somatic symptoms or the the symptoms that you feel within your body because of the susceptibility of the nervous system during that phase of life. So you, you think about a child uh, and, and all the things that are developing within the child, the brain, the, the neurons, the nervous system, all the things, and you add a traumatic event to that, whether it's you know intentional or not, um, there is a, a, a cascade of things that happen that can be lifelong, that can have a lifelong impact for that child. So there's a strong association between childhood trauma and the development of fibromyalgia with a high rate of depression and anxiety being a comorbidity. Um, One of the studies that I looked at determined that out of 88 fibromyalgia patients studied, 100% reported suffering from at least one traumatic event in their life, and 84% had a traumatic event occur prior to the development of their pain symptoms. So again... That's a relatively low study. It's only 88 fibromyalgia patients, but all of them said that they suffered from at least one traumatic event, and 84% of them said that the traumatic event occurred right before the development of their pain symptoms. The mechanism behind this connection is inconclusive. However, some research showed that the CNS excitability or the central nervous system excitability from trauma results in low-grade inflammation which leads to an imbalance of neurotransmitter regulation among other symptoms. So it all kind of has like this cascade effect. You have this, uh, this, this trauma that happens, your body reacts how it reacts. It causes an imbalance and an inflammation within, because again, your body, regardless of what the trauma was, your body is 
in protective mode. It's trying to conserve itself. It's trying to protect itself. And to do that, it has to release certain neurotransmitters. It has to release certain things that cause inflammation. And all of that can be, it can have a lasting effect, which can turn into somatic symptoms or, or symptoms that are felt in the body. Let's talk a little bit about some nutrition and also integrative health kind of uh, things to think about when you have uh, fibromyalgia. Um, first of all, a lot of the treatments for fi fibromyalgia at this point include medications that specifically target pain suppression and also antidepressants and anti-anxiety treatments. So if you are diagnosed with that, it's probably been brought up or maybe you are currently taking some sort of pain uh, suppressing medication and or a, an, an antidepressant. Like I've mentioned with the diagnosis part of it, there's no conclusive treatment for fibromyalgia just because of the subjective nature of the symptoms and, and not everyone has the same symptoms. So it's kind of of symptoms management at that point. It's more of like if you consider it like a palliative type of care approach to taking uh, ver to help individuals improve your quality of life. So whatever your most impactful symptom is, if it's sleep, if it's the depression, if it's um, any of it, pain they'll probably look at treating those specific things um, individually. So one thing that I didn't really mention, but I wanted to touch base on is the fact that fibromyalgia patients have a higher level of free radicals, which lead to a higher level of oxidative stress than those without fibromyalgia. So oxidative stress is what happens within the body when there are free radicals or things that are um, damaging to the cells and to the body. So think of oxidative stress, you think of antioxidants, so that might ring a bell with you. Um, antioxidants are what goes in and gets rid of the free radicals that are floating around your system. We can have free radicals from a number of things, you know, chemicals in the environment, um, smog and, and, and pollution in the air, different things on your foods, eating certain foods, all can cause free radicals to be around in your body. Sugar is a big one, um, but then having antioxidants helps go in there and, and get rid of some of those free radicals. But what this is saying is that people with fibromyalgia tend to have a higher level of free radicals and a higher level of oxidative stress than those without it. So again, the central nervous system can be a big target of oxidative stressors. So those, those free radicals like to attack the central nervous system, and that can lead to many of the pain and the other symptoms of fibromyalgia. So a huge connection there. So again, diets that are higher in antioxidants and vitamins can help to reduce those free radicals and the uh, what's called reactive oxygen species, which is hugely linked to damage and free uh, and oxidative stress, and um, it's a huge impact on the central nervous system. So deficiencies in certain nutrients have been observed in those with fibromyalgia, including, like we mentioned, vitamin D and magnesium but also iron and also vitamin C and vitamin E, which are antioxidants. So huge connection, right? So vitamin C and vitamin E are antioxidants. And um, also a number of diets have been explored to use with fibromyalgia patients. And the results do not seem to point to any one diet in particular, right? <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like I you probably guessed that. But those diets that have a higher amount of antioxidants, food, antioxidant-rich foods in them, like the Mediterranean diet, um, all, it helps to promote and increase anti-inflammatory foods. Also, it reduces the amount of inflammatory causing foods. And one thing, if you've ever heard of what's called low FODMAPs, this is a diet that is usually prescribed or recommended for those with IBS or certain gut issues. FODMAPs, I might do a whole episode on low FODMAP diets, but um, 
interestingly enough, a low FODMAP diet was looked at for use with people with fibromyalgia because of the fact that it's thought that around 70% of people with fibromyalgia also have IBS. So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. So the number one most prescribed, like I said, recommended diet for irritable bowel syndrome is low FODMAPs. So the thought was, let's prescribe low FODMAPs to those with fibromyalgia. Um, And of course, like everything, some people found benefit, some people didn't. Some people found benefit with Mediterranean diet, some people didn't. So if you are one that believes you're suffering with fibromyalgia, then just know if you try out one of those diets or one of those ways of eating and it doesn't work, it's not the end of the road for you. There are other options. Probiotics have also been studied for their effectiveness in reducing symptoms of fibromyalgia. And again, that's due to the link with the gut and, and certain symptoms. Intestinal permeability or leaky gut is significantly increased in fibromyalgia patients. And the theory being that when you have leaky gut, I believe I've done episodes on leaky gut before. If I, if I haven't, I, I forget who I've been talking to about leaky gut and all that. I feel like I talk about it every day. Um, but when you have a leaky gut, then that means certain particles are getting through your digestive tract and getting into your bloodstream and going systemic that aren't supposed to be there. So it's not like you have whole chunks of like, you know, a hot dog floating around your blood or anything, but the tiny microbes and yeah, the tiny microbes, the tiny proteins, the tiny little, um, elements of the food get passed through that aren't supposed to be there. And now because your, your, your immune system sees it floating around your blood and it will attack it. And if it happens to bind to certain cells like your thyroid or like, um, you know, your muscles or your gut or anything like that, it can cause pain. It can cause dysfunction. It can cause all sorts of things. So fibromyalgia and leaky gut are, uh, definitely being looked at together. Uh, but as of right now, there have not been conclusive evidence tying a specific strain. So back to probiotics, there's no specific evidence tying a specific strain to a type of therapy uh, that, that should be considered. But probiotics is always something to think about. But when it comes to like the, the best course of action, do you think it's just popping a probiotic or do you think you should actually work on healing your leaky gut? You know, that would be my question. Um, and I want to talk about a couple of other non-nutrition related uh, therapies. So thermal therapy, which is basically like a spa or a hot hot tub, uh, hot water therapy, and also cryotherapy or cold therapy have been shown to be effective in smaller studies. So hot water therapy was found to help reduce inflammation and uh, muscle atrophy in patients with fibromyalgia and as well as bring some pain relief. Um, also, when a couple of studies looked at using a hot tub and movement therapy or physical therapy and the benefit was greater when it comes to cryotherapy or cold water therapy um, you often think of this like with athletes you see like runners or you see uh, football players something like that sitting in an ice bath and it does help to reduce inflammation but it was also found to create a similar benefit in fibromyalgia patients So the body's response to cold helps to increase anti-inflammatory cytokines or the things that cause inflammation. Um, So it increases the ones that that are anti-inflammatory, and it also helps to stimulate the immune system to help fight inflammation. Uh, Another thing was laser and phototherapies have been shown to improve the range of motion. So if your fibromyalgia has gotten to the point or your pain has gotten to the point where it's limiting your range of motion... This uh, laser therapy and phototherapies in a couple of smaller studies were shown to be effective for range of motion, uh, specifically when they're in combined with drug therapies. 
So hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of some fibromyalgia background, some history. It's super uh, inconclusive when it comes to how it originates and what causes it and the diagnosis of it. But just know that if, if there's one takeaway, just understand that it is very highly subjective. It's very individual. And if you are having pain and if you are having some undiagnosed issues happening, possibly look into it being fibromyalgia and just know that it might seem frustrating and you might feel hopeless because doctors aren't listening to you or they're rub they're they're brushing it off like it's just all in your head. Um, you can actually tell them that, yeah, it is. It's a pain perception condition that does, it, it is impacted by your head and how you perceive pain, but that doesn't make the pain any less real. That's the thing. If the doctor is brushing it off like it's just all in your head, here, just pop this pill, just know that it can take up to two plus years to be properly diagnosed. And you don't have to stop at just one doctor. You can get a second opinion, go and see a rheumatologist who can maybe give you uh, one of those other assessments that you can that you can tie some symptoms to and track your symptoms, track your symptoms. Because if the diagnosis is based off of having chronic pain for at least three months or more consecutively, it's super helpful for you to show a journal of pain when you can bring it to the doctor and be like, see, it dates back to whatever the date is. So a simple journal of just keeping it, put the date, put a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst pain possible, one being no pain, give yourself a grade, maybe jot down little bullet points of where you feel the pain. If it's in upper back, if it's in your shoulder, if it's in your leg or wherever, just make some simple notes like that. It does not have to be this like really in-depth thing. Just take some simple notes because that will show a pattern and that will hopefully speed up the diagnosis and hopefully speed up the treatment plan for you and give you a quicker path to relief than just this uh, runaround between doctor to doctor to doctor. So um, hopefully this was helpful. If you know of somebody who has chronic pain or if you know of somebody who might have fibromyalgia or who does have fibromyalgia, there's a whole lot more to it nutrition wise that we can dive into. But I just I wanted to keep it kind of basic. Just I didn't know where people's uh, minds were at when it comes to fibromyalgia. But there is a lot of nutritional things that can be looked at and tried out. So if you'd like to at any point schedule a consultation with me to see if working together is a good fit, uh, please do so. I'll put the link to do that in the show notes. And if you found this episode helpful, take a screenshot of it. If you're listening to it on your phone, take a screenshot of this episode and post it on social media. I'd love to be able to connect with you and see what you learned and see what stood out for you. I always find that super helpful um, th knowing that certain things resonated with other people. So um, and if you have a chance, if you have a quick second, I'd love it if you are listening on Apple or iTunes to go in and leave a review real quick for me. That is super helpful. Not only do I love hearing that uh, the show is useful for you, but it also helps get the show visible to more people who could use uh, the information that I'm giving. So I would really appreciate that. If anything comes up, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. It's at Food Factory Nutrition on all social media platforms. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Food Factor Podcast. It is my personal mission to help people make the best food choices that they can for their particular situation. So if you found this episode helpful, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or a family member or somebody who needs to hear this information and also leave me a review. Those are the things that help get this podcast seen and heard by more people who could use the help as well. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening.